Welcome to Deal Us In, a podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods and Seven Mile Advisors. Deal Us In promotes the advancement of women in private equity and finance through conversations with women leaders and rising stars in the private equity and finance space. These conversations provide both insights and practical takeaways to inform your deal work and enhance the culture of your organization. If you're ready to drive the industry toward a more inclusive and diverse environment, then it's time to come to the table. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Deal Us In. Today, we have Susan Rodriguez and Jody Lawson with us, partners at McGuire Woods. Before we get started, we had this idea. Susan and I had talked about this. Gosh, Susan, was that a couple months ago now? I don't know if we were just really excited to look forward to something or Mm -hmm. Halloween. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe it's everything that's going on in the world. But we had this idea about maybe doing a horror stories episode about what transactional attorneys can learn from their litigator and government audit counterparts and colleagues. And so that was the genesis of this episode. Before we get started, I want to say, you know, like any good attorney, we have to give our disclaimers. We're talking about horror stories today, primarily, so we can avoid our own. In the process, we're not going to reveal any privileged or confidential information about our clients or cases. The names have been changed. The details, you know, have been altered, (laughs) but we're going to provide you with some things that Jody and Susan have learned from their experience and expertise. And with that, Susan, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice and introduce yourself, please? Sure, sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Susan Rodriguez. I am a partner in the Charlotte, North Carolina office of McGuire Woods, and I'm a government investigations and white-collar partner. I'm also co-lead of the McGuire Woods Financial Institutions Industry Team. And that's a group of about 300 attorneys across the firm who serve some of our financial institution clients. And relevant for today, of course, I'm going to be talking a little bit about I-9s later in the the podcast. And I derived this experience from working many years at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. I was actually one of the inaugural employees when it stood up after 9-11. So that was a lot of fun and learned a lot while I was there in the early 2000s. I also worked at the White House for a while, and I will say that I'm really excited about doing this podcast today. As Kelsey mentioned, we've been talking about doing this horror stories because we see things as government attorneys and litigators that, you know, the transactional side may not see up front. We'll see the results, you know, a year, two years down the road, and thought it might be helpful for you all to hear a little bit about some of our perspectives. I must say I'm also really excited because this also takes me back to the 1990s of my first job, which was doing radio news and weather announcements. So it should be fun to do this. And with that, I want to turn it over to my colleague and good friend, Jody Lawson. Good afternoon, everyone. And it's funny, Susan, that you mentioned your experience on the radio, and it just certainly brought me back to elementary school and being one of the people who was selected to send out and tell the school announcements. Certainly excited to relive my glory days here with everybody today. So my name is Jody Lawson, and I'm a litigation partner in Charlotte, North Carolina, by way of Washington, D.C. 
I went to law school up in Northern Virginia, and I clerked for three judges in the Eastern District of Virginia after finishing up law school. I worked for Judge O'Grady, Judge Hilton, and Judge Poritz in the court that I lovingly like to refer to as the Rocket Docket. And I soon after my clerkship, I joined the McGuire Woods Tyson's Corner Office. And I practiced there for a couple of years before moving down to Charlotte, but I'm a litigator. My primary areas of focus are business litigation, financial services litigation, and energy litigation. I handle matters in state and federal court and also arbitrations across the country, and I am looking forward to discussing some spooky litigation topics as we approach the Halloween holiday. Thanks so much, Susan and Jody. We're so glad to have you on the podcast. This episode is going to sew together a patchwork of horror stories to kick off our Frankenstein-inspired conversation. Jody is going to share some issues we should be considering related to blue sky laws. So the first horror story that I wanted to talk about is to get everybody thinking about deals that involve a stock purchase agreement. So in deals, you typically see two different types of structures. You've either got a stock purchase agreement or an asset purchase agreement. But when you're dealing with a stock purchase agreement, Everybody needs to be incredibly mindful of blue sky laws, or these are essentially state promulgated acts that mirror federal securities laws. The reason that you want to be beware of these blue sky laws is typically because they have heightened damages provisions, such as attorney's fees and treble damages that would follow with liability on a claim. And parties can use this type of claim for enhanced damages as leverage in several different respects. Sometimes people try to use these claims as threats to negotiate purchase price reductions after the closing of the deal. And second, it also creates exposure primarily for sellers in potential exposure that they may face after they close a deal. And you want to, of course, be thinking about this before you actually close the deal so that you can prepare for it. Blue sky laws are typically aimed at protecting individuals from fraudulent or overly speculative investments. However, in most states, the definitions will be broad enough to cover an average stock purchase deal. So when you are dealing with a stock purchase agreement, think about it carefully. Look at the state that you are about to conduct your deal in and make sure you're being mindful about representations made in that agreement that could potentially implicate a state securities law or a blue sky law. Jody, before we move on to the second story, what's kind of the worst level of damages you've seen attributed to these blue sky laws? I mean, I think a lot of people sometimes lose sight of them in transactional work. What's the maybe the largest indemnification claim you've seen, if you know offhand, or one of the worst situations you've seen from your experience a seller get into based on these blue sky laws? That's a really good question. So I think the primary thing, the way that I've seen these types of claims used is both with the treble damages and with attorney's fees. So imagine the scenario where you get sued And let's say the other side is successful and you lose. Not only do you have to pay your damages and your attorney's fees for defending that claim, but you've got to pay the other side's attorney's fees. And that can really ratchet up the amounts that 
the claim could potentially cause exposure on. The other problem is that a lot of the state statutes also allow for what's called treble damages. So that means you prove up your damages. Let's just say your damages are $5 million. There is a provision under certain statutes that trebles that. So if your damages, your actual damages are $5 million, you multiply that by three. So you're looking at $15 million in damages plus your attorney's fees, plus the other side's attorney's fees. And that can really ratchet up the pressure and the exposure. And again, people, I've seen people use this as a way to create leverage in order to negotiate purchase price reductions after the fact. Because when you're facing damages claims of that nature, it can really change the economics of the deal. That is scary. Do you see this primarily related to the current equity deal, or do you oversee them looking back at transactions that have gone on in the history of the company before the current, you know, equity purchase and going after, I mean, I guess it just depends on what third-party claims are being made at that time, and it could potentially relate to something historical during the life of the organization before an exit. Is that correct? It certainly could. It certainly could, because you look at changes of ownership, and sometimes they want to go back and look at how things were done before they took control. And again, you know, a lot of times people are looking for any way to create value, and a lot of times people look at litigation as a way to potentially create a way to add some more value to a deal that either is done currently or that was done within the limitations period that would be applicable. And again, that would depend on state law and what the type of claim is that you're looking at. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but I guess this could also depend on what the purchase agreement itself looks like, what the reps and warranties are included and what the related definitions are. And that leads me to topic number two, which is don't let a monster get into your deal document definitions. I have seen definitions and agreements play out in litigation so many different times. I feel like the definitions often are fodder for litigation. One specific matter that I wanted to discuss today is the definition of proceeding. When you think about a proceeding, for most people, to me, that means a place where somebody has filed a complaint or where somebody has made a specific certain claim. And I've seen people use very broad definitions of proceeding in their agreement. Now, if you're a buyer, you're going to want to have a broad definition of proceeding because you're going to want to give yourself every opportunity to make sure you understand what types of things have happened at the company you're going to purchase or invest in. And on the seller side, of course, you want to keep that definition of proceeding very narrow. And the reason for that is what actually constitutes a proceeding? Well, some people may think of it as a filed court case. You could look at what actually may constitute a proceeding depending on the type of business. If it's a business that has employees, lots of employees that are out on the job performing labor What if one of those employees gets hurt on the job and they file or submit a claim for a workers' compensation claim to the company? Well, does that constitute a proceeding? Does that constitute a claim? If the word claim appears in your definition of proceeding, you could potentially argue that even an informal claim filed with the company constitutes a proceeding 
And when you're a selling company, you may not think about including something like that in your rep. When you're making disclosures in the deal, you may not think, oh, well, you know, there are five pending workers' comp claims that have been submitted to the company, and do we need to disclose that? And what could happen is you close on the deal, somebody comes back after the fact, and they learn that there are these workers' compensation claims that are pending. Well, does, is that what the parties intended when they were including the definition of claim within the proceeding? And chances are the answer is probably not, because those workers' compensation claims wouldn't necessarily be something filed with any sort of state agency or regulator. A lot of times those are just reported. So it's a good lesson to remember to, again, depending on which side you're on, make sure you look closely at the definitions in your deal documents so you don't end up with a scary situation after closing. And I think one point related to that is when you're on the sell side and you're, you're the attorney on the sell side, including the definitions with the reps and maybe the skeleton of the schedules, which we usually do, so that people really understand that this isn't just a proceedings in the in the general sense of that term or in the common sense of that term, perhaps. That's not what was negotiated. This is what that means. And it means looking at your insurance records and even minor claims and maybe putting those on the schedules as well just so you are, you know, really communicating with management and understanding what they have out there and their understanding what's supposed to be included. Absolutely. And I love that. The skeleton of the schedules, it has a dual meaning here in our Halloween podcast. (laughs) I guess that's true. (laughs) even thought about that. But yeah, that's what we always refer to it as, the skeleton. Someone asked me a question. I don't know if it was that word or another word recently. It was a junior associate. And they were like, I keep seeing someone say this word all of the time. And it's funny how you get so used to using something. And then you're right. That has a total dual meaning and a spooky meaning for our episode. Um, (laughs) I guess that brings us to the third topic, which is the release language, which I know is another horror, can be another horror story on the sell side if you're not careful. This can absolutely be a horror story. So take mind and take note and do not let this happen to you. So typically when you think about exiting an investment, you think about getting the most broad possible release, but think twice before you do that. If you're in a situation where there's a complicated corporate structure involved in the investment, There are times where, depending on which point in time you're at, there are different people and entities that are associated with the corporate structure. And if you broadly include affiliates in a release, you could end up in a terrifying situation where you're later sued down the road related to your participation in that potential investment, and you could end up not being able to actually defend yourself because you arguably could have potentially and unfortunately released the other side from any and all liability. And that could leave you in a very precarious position if you are in litigation where there's an argument that you can't either bring affirmative claims, which could assist in your defense, or that you could potentially have placed yourself in the middle of a boxing ring with your hands tied behind your back 
because you can't defend yourself based on some release language that was included. So when you're exiting a transaction, think carefully about what that release looks like and look at the different points in time about who was in the company ownership structure, who is a director, who's an officer, who is an affiliate, and think carefully through that affiliate language and through that director and officer language to make sure that you have them on the right side of the release, or you can include a carve-out. Carve-outs are always good to make sure that if something happens down the road that you aren't hamstrung by virtue of wanting to have a clean exit from a deal, but keep in the back of your mind things with that company could go south later and they might try to drag you in because maybe you're a deep pocket. And I think the carve-out point is is a really good one. I know a couple carve-outs that we commonly see or use are ones related to the transaction documents themselves, right? Obviously, you're not waiving in the obligations, the agreement that you're entering into then, the other party's obligations to you. So, of course, you want to carve that out from the release. Another thing is any employment compensation. If you haven't gotten your last payroll and you're a principal in the company or something of that nature, then that should probably be carved out as well. Or if it's being paid up at closing, it may not need to. One other place that you see is the definition of affiliates, which you mentioned is, do you have any relationships, vendor or supplier or or customer relationship with any of the people that may be considered affiliates of this entity. Now, if they're private equity owned or something like that, they could have other platforms and potentially those may be captured by the definition of affiliate. The ordinary course relationships where, you know, someone may owe you money for a product or service that you've delivered, you would want to make sure you're not, as you said, Jody, hamstrung from bringing claims like that. Those are the exceptions I've seen. Have you seen any other carve-outs and release language that are are worth raising? Well, one thing actually that I wanted to just follow up on that you said, which is the use of affiliates and just following up on that one point, somebody who's not even a party, like you said, can also try to use a release language. It would be, frankly, a gratuitous release. They wouldn't have any consideration. They wouldn't be a party to it. But even despite that, Depending on which state you're in, there are some states that have held that even if it's a completely gratuitous matter, that if somebody is released and they've got an argument that they're actually released by those deal documents, even if they're not a party to it, even if they're an unaffiliated entity or not directly affiliated with the company, if they could be potentially construed as an affiliate, they could try to use that release language to get out of some sort of obligation. Now, of course, there's the practical problem of where they actually have notice of the release language, and and maybe they wouldn't, but you also do want to keep that in mind when you're drafting your release language. And I think the key really is specific exclusions. You want to get the carve-outs in there because you can always point back to a carve-out, and then you know that you've you've thought about it, you've been thoughtful in your drafting, and, you know, that way the parties are on the same side. With regard to who is being released, you go into it knowingly. But I think the big carve-out would be liability down the road for any sort of litigation, a litigation carve-out, and then some of the more specific deal-side carve-outs that you pointed out, making sure that compensation isn't released, and also making sure that the obligations under the release itself that you could carve out from there so that the parties just have a full and final release. Well, you want to make sure that they're actually going to be complying with their other obligations in that agreement itself. 
So maybe include a carve out to say the parties release each other, but, you know, they're still responsible for complying with their obligations in the agreement. I've seen that argued too. Hey, you know, it's a, it's a broad release. The parties are going their separate ways, but no, you actually want them to make sure they are complying with the obligations in that very agreement. That's right. I mean, I would hope that that's an uphill battle argument to make, but I'd rather not that argument be on the table at all, right? Because these parties have taken the time and expense and thought of going through this process to negotiate the rep. This is not a as-is, whereas sale. It's not a bill of sale, and that's for purpose from both sides. I agree wholeheartedly with that. So I think that brings us to our next topic, which is I-9s and their consideration during a transaction process and other horror stories and concerns, I guess, related thereto. Susan, would you mind giving us a background on some of the I-9 issues that come up in a transaction and then some of the items that the parties should take into consideration when closing a deal? Kelsey, you know, this is a topic we talk about all the time, but it's very easy in deals to overlook what's called the Form I-9. Some of you who are listening to the podcast, you might even be saying, well, Form I-9, what was that? Form I-9, if you remember back maybe when you started a job, is the two-page form that you fill out and you hand in your driver's license and social security card or maybe your, you know, green card or maybe your passport. You can choose which documents you turn in, but you have to do that when you begin a job. And that little form, that two-page form, is attached with an 80-page manual on how to complete it. And it's subject to not just civil fines, but it's subject to criminal penalties. And that's the, the horror story and the scary point that everybody should know about. And how this comes up in deals is when you're acquiring employees and there's a rule for corporate transactions. That's the word that DHS, Homeland Security, uses. And it's very broad. So whatever type of deal you're doing, you have a corporate transaction rule that you can take advantage of when you're doing a deal. And here's how the rule goes. So you can either retain the Form I-9 or you can complete all new ones. Now, if you choose to retain the Form I-9s for employees, you actually inherit any liabilities for deficiencies. So just to give you a sense of kind of what the fine structure is, it can be $230 or it could be almost $2,300 per Form I-9. So that's actually, if you to think about that for a moment, every employee should have a Form I-9. So you could be penalized up to $2,300 for each employee if you don't have good paperwork in place. Of course, the fines are higher, and this is where you get into criminal penalties if if there are people who are unauthorized to work at the company, and and we do see that from time to time. So those are things you have to watch out for. So when you're doing a deal, what we usually recommend, and Kelsey, you and I work together on this all the time, but we ask for you know a sample set, depending on the size of the company, or we might ask for all the I nines. and we take a look at behind the curtain and you know see what we see. Is it really scary or is it something we can we can live with? And then, you know, if it is something really scary, you do have an out usually, which is complete all new Form I-9s. And if you do that, that's the second part of the corporate transaction rule. If you complete all new I-9s, you can avoid inheriting any liabilities. 
But there's a problem with that, especially when you're doing a deal. That's where the devil is in the details. So what happens if you decide to complete all new Form I-9, you're under a very, very strict regulatory timeframe. So let's say deal closes. You have to complete all new Form I-9s for every single employee that you're acquiring or is transferring over. Section 1, that's where the employee, you know, fills out their name, their date of birth, and they say whether they're a U.S. citizen or an alien authorized to work or permanent resident, and then they'll sign the document. That part of the form has to be completed no later than the first day after the deal closes. And that's usually what we call the first day of work. That gets into, you know, Kelsey, we've even talked about timing of deals. Like, when do you close the deal to make sure that next day is actually the first day of work? So do you have to consider that as well? And then there's a Section 2 part. And the Section 2 part is where, again, I referenced earlier, the employee brings in their documents to show that they're eligible to work in the U.S. They'll bring in, again, their passport or their Social Security card and their driver's license for example, and you'll look at that document and then the HR person that you have will sign it. That has to be done by the end of the third business day after the deal closes. You've gotten some really tight timeframes here. So if you're doing a deal and you've only got 30 employees, well, yeah, that's really easy. But if you've got a deal that has 2,000 employees, it gets a lot harder to do this. So that's why you want to really look at this during diligence, make good decisions, so you don't end up on the bad side of this. And let me just highlight for you some really scary statistics that I pulled on this. First of all, worksite investigation. So these are called Form I-9 audit. The government can walk into your company at any time and they can hand you a notice of inspection and they say, I wanna review all your Form I-9s. And that's where you get into the civil and the criminal penalties that we talked about. So for the last decade or so, there's been a real emphasis on trying to do more of these I-9 audits. And we've seen a real uptick in that. And the statistics that I just pulled, these are from Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE. So one of the last published statistics they did to give you some comparison, in 2018, they opened up almost 7,000 investigations but the year before that, they only had 1,700. So you can see how this is really on the rise. For I-9 audit, they had around 6,000. And the year before, they only did 1,300. And then this is where it gets really scary. And you want to stay out of the horror story of a criminal investigation. Those are usually where you have high levels of individuals who may not be authorized to work. And the company may not have had good paper work practices or Form I-9 practices. And what can happen there is even managers, so not just the company, but you can actually have managers indicted, criminally indicted. So, for example, physical year 2018, there were 72 managers indicted. And then there were also 49 managers convicted of criminal charges. So this is just, Kelsey, I think you and I have talked about this. This is a very scary area when we talk to clients about this. Sometimes it's an education that they, you know, may not even know exactly what an I-9 is and how important it is to review when you're doing and a deal. Right. And I think, Susan, there's so much information there and so much to unpack. But the first thing I want to say is when you're doing a deal, 
There's so many pieces moving around. There's so many people going through files trying to think, as Joni mentioned before, about what does a proceeding mean? Is this a proceeding going through your insurance documents? Going through everything, right, to try to figure out what you need to disclose on the sell side, right? This, to me, is one of those things that's kind of like a killer rabbit, you know, like from Monty Python, where it's be sitting there in an employee file somewhere. You're not really thinking about it after that employee was hired very much because you just do it once for them, presumably, you know, while you're still owning the business. And it's probably someone in your HR department maybe that's handling it. And you're not really, it's not where your focus is necessarily when you're closing a deal. But at the same time, it can be so scary. And I think there's a couple questions I want to address with you. I think the first one is a lot of times we structure things as asset deals trying to cut off success or liability. But this is one of those areas where there can be success or liability in it, even in the asset context. And could you, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure, sure. So there's law about successor liability for four my nines, and I'll just be honest, it's not quite crystal clear. It's not black and white. And so if you go back to the corporate transaction rule, if you're continuing employment of employees, no matter if it's an asset deal, if, if you still decide to keep the employees around and you keep those I-9s, then it's kind of separate from some of the questions that we normally consider in a deal with an asset purchase agreement kind of cutting off liabilities, it doesn't work that way with Form I-9s, just like you pointed out. Because if you keep those I-9s for the employees, you're going to still keep those liabilities. So that's one area that's kind of a, a carve out there. And it's just because of the way the DHS wor rules work. And so that's why you really you know, want to pay close attention to this. And I have seen, you're right about the killer rabbit, because I've seen deals die because of this. And no one knew when they first got into the deal that it would even be an issue. Everything's going just peachy. And then all of a sudden, we find out we've got a huge problem with their form on nines, and there may not be a way out of it. If you've got good counsel, usually you can figure out a way out of it by doing new form on nines. But sometimes that means some termination decisions as well. I guess related to timing, right, there's a couple things that you and I have talked about before that I want to cover here. So one of the things is, one of the considerations is, when are you letting the employees know, right? Because you've, there may exactly be some sensitivity right. on the sell side, especially maybe on both sides, to letting the employees know that there's a transaction going on at all. And if you have a lot of employees where you're trying to get the process kind of front-loaded, before the transaction occurs because you have so little time after it closes to complete these, then that becomes a real, real issue, right? That's absolutely right. For everybody on the who's listening on the podcast, just to give you a little bit more flavor for this, we talked about those tight regulatory timeframes of first day to the deal closes and the third day. Well, you do have the option pre-close to start filling out these new I-9s as long as, as the seller agrees with you and you be filling out, you know, on behalf of, of the buyer. But you can do that before the deal closes. 
but then you're tipping off all of the employees that you're actually going to be doing this deal. So there's some real sensitivities around that. But if you're comfortable disclosing it to the employees and there's no other reasons that you can't, you can actually start completing those I-9s before the deal closes. So that gives you a little bit of extra time if you're in a situation where you do want to complete all new I-9s. Do you see a focus on one type of industry over another for enforcement actions? I know audits and enforcement are increasing, I'm sure, across the board based on the stats that you've you've shared, but is there particular industries where we're seeing a huge upswing in enforcement or that we're already a focus? That's also a good question. And historically, everybody can probably take a guess that food industry, agriculture industry, those are always kind of at the top of the list for enforcement. We see a lot of restaurants. We see a lot of farming, landscaping, all of the above that are heavy on the enforcement side. But a new area that that has come in is based on an initiative by a Homeland Security where they've really focused on critical infrastructure. So that can be, you know, data centers, that can be nuclear centers, which I'm not sure anybody's buying nuclear centers on, on this call, but that critical infrastructure that you're looking for can extend very widely. So that would impact, for example, the energy industry. It would also impact the financial industry. So if you've got like a fintech company or something, those are going to be start rising on the list. And right now, Homeland Security is prioritizing some of those because they want to make sure our critical infrastructure is, quote unquote, protected. And they do that by looking at the workforce that's there and they do an I-9 audit. I've seen several of those come up this year. So there's a real push by Homeland Security to do that. And I guess I, I want to go back to, to one point later, but this leads me into another question that I, I had was, what do you expect with respect to, you know, audits, investigations, and enforcement actions in light of the election? If we have a Democratic president, does that necessarily mean that the brakes get pumped or that things slow down on the enforcement side of things? Or does that does that really... Would that impact it? I guess how much does an administration influence those those enforcement actions and focuses for future investigations? It definitely would impact it, but I wouldn't get too comfortable. And and here's why. I mean, certainly we have seen an uptick in enforcement under the Trump administration. Uh, I gave you some of the statistics earlier, and I'll tell you. One of the other scary stories, the horror stories that you want to avoid is there was a, a company that, that is nationwide, this was public, but actually pled guilty. The company pled guilty as well as some of their executives, and they had to pay an $80 million fine, which was a record fine. That was back in 2017. And they had to pay an additional $15 million to satisfy some civil claims. And this one is, you know, talking about horror stories. If you ever read that, what they agreed to, and this is in public filings and stuff, they had to agree to some very interesting measures, including facial recognition for their employees to make sure they are who they say they are. And I've never seen that come out before. So they're getting more innovative and 
and how they are enforcing things. So I thought that was a really interesting topic. But I will say, you know, I worked for two different administrations on both sides and both put 499 audits at a premium. They were important. And I still think that we'd probably see that go forward because there was an initiative to hire lots more ICE agents, even under the Obama administration, to do worksite enforcement. So I do think that will stay somewhat steady. We probably will see a decline if we do get a Democratic president. But again, I wouldn't get too comfortable because there's still going to be I-9 audits out there and there'll still be penalties associated with that. So, Susan, that's really interesting. I would think that there would be some sort of shift depending on administration, but it seems like it's a focal point potentially for both in that we're going to, this is a trend, I think, security of our infrastructure. It's, I mean, that's, that's kind of really interesting that we're seeing that in the I-9 play out with I-9 investigations now. I had no idea about that. I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that that's, those are now industry focuses as well. I mean, I think you're right. That there's some typical or traditional industries that we would think would be a focus, but um, that's really good to know. One thing I want to go back to, Susan, is with respect to, and this came up on deals that we've worked on together, and that's why I want to make sure we cover it, is with respect to PPP considerations in the I-9 process. One of the qualifications for PPP loans is that you're not dismissing employees, you're keeping your workforce the same. How have you seen that impact how we're thinking about I-9 in the transaction process? So especially this year, obviously, this is such an important topic. And the reason it's, it's connected with the I-9, sometimes when you're doing a deal, you'll, you'll find some issues with the I-9. And then, oh, by the way, they have a PPP loan. And what are PPP loans for? One of the reasons is is for payroll and pay employees. And companies have to make certain representations to the government about their employees and paying them. And you alluded to, you know, there's also some rules around you got to keep them around and things. But what if we find that someone's not authorized to work? Or what if we find some issues? in the Form I-9 diligence process, how does that impact the PPP process? And so that needs to be very carefully considered because you don't want to be taking on a liability where you're maybe purchasing a company that's made a misrepresentation to the government. That's also a criminal penalty. It's very scary that that could happen. Everybody should, should be aware of, if you're not already, there was some guidance that came out just a few weeks back on changes in ownerships and how the SBA wants you to handle that when there is a PPP loan. So again, I think that's where you want to have good deal counsel and that can kind of help you through some of those issues because some of them can be the theme of the day, very scary. Susan, practically speaking, if you were in a situation where, you know, an employee is going to need to be let go because of these immigration concerns and you've got a PPP question can you, in order to make sure you're still in compliance by keeping your employees employed, I mean, is, are you able to substitute in additional employees that possibly have compliance, that are in compliance, that are not problematic? Or, I mean, obviously, that's something you would want to work through with counsel, but have you seen that happen at all yet in your practice? Yeah, I think it's a very, very fact-specific situation when you come across something like that. 
And a lot of times there's not an opportunity to, to transfer out, but you've got to sort of weigh some of the considerations. If you continue to employ someone who's not authorized to work, there's case law out there, even if it's only for two weeks, that can rise to the level of a criminal penalty. So that's another, again, horror story that even in two weeks, there's some case law out there that says that's too long to continue to employ somebody who's not authorized to work. So you've got to really walk a tight, tight rope to get to the right answer on that. It's just very fact-specific. So I'd go back, get good deal counsel on that. And we have been seeing some similar trends with PPP litigation. It has become a huge area where lots of people are trying to, you know, file lawsuits against businesses, against institutions for a whole range of claims. And I think it really, it's, at this point, the, the area of the law is so new, but it's, it's something that all companies should be aware of because you can get it in the employee context. And you can see it in many different contexts where people are trying to use PPP loans as fodder for litigation. And I'll say I've seen a lot of courts dismiss a lot of these actions, but, you know, it really, there's, there are a lot of clever plaintiff's attorneys out there who are using this as fodder for additional litigation. And so we've certainly seen a lot of litigation trends rising from the PPP litigation. That's certainly something people are going to want to keep on the, on the front of their minds as well. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Judy, I don't know if this is some an argument you've seen made, but I just wonder, has anyone tried to use the PPP certifications as some sort of like amendment to the at-will nature of their employment? I mean, they're That's not a, a really third-party beneficiary on that, but I was just wondering. I haven't seen that yet, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't happened. And that certainly does seem like an argument that somebody would certainly make. And then, of course, well, that employer at the same time is not trying to let anyone go or be in that situation. But this kind of crossroads between finding I-9 noncompliance and, you know, maybe needing to let someone go versus having certifications that you're not going to let people go is a really difficult situation. And I'm sure there's going to be lots of issues bubbling up in litigation related to it. Absolutely. So, Jody and Susan, we ask all of our guests our signature question, and that's what advice would you give your 22-year-old self? So, I don't know if one of you wants to tackle that first, but uh, we'd love to hear <laughs> your you take that first. Oh, Susan, I was going to nominate you. <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm older and I have three beautiful kids. One of the things that I wish I had done more was just to travel and learn, you know, maybe do a European trip or something. I would have loved to do that more because then I think at 22, I was already working and there's, you know, already have my nose in the books on things and didn't get a chance to do some of the stuff that I wanted to do and travel, but, you know, I've got retirement to look forward to hopefully (laughs) in, in a few years. So. So I love this question, and it also will share a little bit more about Susan and me. We actually went to law school together, and people often joke that you know, people confuse us all the time. And I take that, of course, as a huge compliment. Of course, since we are cut from the same cloth, essentially, my response would be, 
similar, but a little bit nuanced. So I actually did a lot of traveling and I only, my, I think my biggest regret in life is that I didn't take a year or two off and actually go and live in another country. So I studied abroad in Spain twice and those were some of the most formative times of my entire life. I grew so much as an individual. I learned so much. And I think what I always really wanted to do was to, you know, take a year off and go and, you know, teach or do something and just really be exposed to a different culture. And I was always too afraid to do it because I needed to have a five-year plan. I've always had a five-year plan. And that five-year plan, did never it never included a period of time where I wasn't either gainfully employed or studying or, you know, planning my career out. And so... I agree with Susan. I think I certainly have got my eye on retirement travel. Hopefully, we can get back there to where it's safe to do that at some point. Take that year off. Take that two years off. And, you know, you've got plenty of time to follow your dream, and that can still fit, you know, within a decent five-year plan. I think that's really interesting that both of you had a quite <laughs> similar response. I don't know if it's symptomatic of, you know, one of the things is, that we're all, you know, at home or, you know, not really traveling right now. And I think so many people have come to that realization about different life experiences that they, you know, want to have or that they're planning and that they want to, are kind of itching to, you know, get out the door and do. I really love that response. And I think it's very timely and appropriate for right now. I feel very similarly. <laughs> but, Gosh, um, isn't it ever? Yeah, we I, used to look forward to a, a at least a once or twice yearly trip, family trip to go somewhere fun and learn something new. And, you know, our trips now are very limited to what's driving distance and is it even safe to do that? So hopefully one day we'll, we'll get back there. I know lots of people are itching to get out of the house and get back to exploring new things and enjoying family vacations. Exactly. Yeah, I know I am. Well, Jody and Susan, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you for lending your expertise to the transactional practitioners that are listeners and the companies that are listening in. I hope that we can come back to you at some point when we need additional expertise and guidance. So thank you again for joining us. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And it's funny, a lot of my clients joke and they say, sure have been nice knowing you, but I hope I never have to call you again. I never take offense to that because I know that nobody wants to find themselves on the other side of a litigation. And, you know, as far as Susan is concerned, nobody wants to find themselves on the other side of a government investigator, but we are certainly standing by to help if we can and certainly appreciate the time today. Yeah, we're always happy Certainly, to help with yeah. horror stories, but we hope you don't have to come to us <laughs> for horror stories. So. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the point of the episode, I think. And I mean, I certainly prefer to talk to you all before the transaction closes rather <laughs> exactly. than after. So that's right. <laughs> thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Absolutely. everyone. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode of DLS In. If you have a recommendation for an inspiring interviewee, a question you'd like us to ask, or a topic you would like to hear covered, or if you'd like to tell us about women-focused initiatives in the field, please go to our website at www.dlsnpodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you.